everybody. My name's Kizzy, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is October 16th, 1986. This is really a surprise. You know, I didn't expect this. All these shirts with these doves. They sit here, they look like little birds. They're just looking up. You know, I fed you all I know. You all got it. <laughs> got it. I'll tell you, I'd like to thank Jerry and the committee for asking me. Uh, this, you know, God really meant to give me a lesson in humility this weekend. Last night, Sterling, you know, it's been the program forever. And all those old timers, and I have such a deep love and admiration for these old timers. And then this morning, Garland, I told someone that man needs lessons on how to be laid back, you know. He was good here. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, this powerful message from my Al-Anon friend Peg. And it's been such a joy. Uh, it's been such a joy to spend time with her. We got to ride up yesterday and take um, take Larry and Ross's inventories all the way up here. It was so much fun. <laughs> From the very beginning, I identified with that Al-Anon anger. I went to my first conference, and I don't know if Peg knows this Al-Anon or not, but this lady was uh, trying to drown her husband in the bathtub, her alcoholic husband. You know who I'm talking about, Jerry. And um, a boy, I, the, the adrenaline just started coming up in me, and I was going, "Go, girl, get that sucker, drowning." And and then I then I said, in my mind, now you need to double scotch on the rocks, yeah. But she didn't get that, you know. I don't understand these people. They can do that without without that alcohol. Uh, I liked it last night, you know, uh, when uh, Sterling said about. The dysfunctional family and uh, his being, you know, part of it. Uh, if I was from a dysfunctional family, it was dysfunctional because I was in it. There's no doubt about that. I, my father was a minister. First of all, my father was an alcoholic. And um, when I was real little, he stopped drinking. He was an engineer who stopped drinking and became a preacher and he built churches. And so uh, when I was little, I didn't remember his drinking that much. There were six of us kids, and uh, we were to all leave home and go to all parts of the world. And when we came back together, we were all but one was an alcoholic. So you don't have to convince me of the disease genetic thing about this alcoholism. Uh, my oldest brother died two years ago of active al alcoholism. Our youngest brother is still practicing, and my sister, I have a sister who is not an alcoholic, and then there's three of us who are recovering in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's John, Romy, and me, and we're all here today, so that's real special. <laughs> but I remember, uh, you know, growing up in that home, that minister's home, my mother was always home. Um, it sounded a little bit like Peggy's home when she was talking about it. My mother cooked all those meals and took care of her kids. And um, My dad was an intellectual. You know, he, he preached and had us in church all the time. But at the same time, he taught us Greek. And he uh, read the classics to us. And he expected academic excellence. Every night, I remember at the dining table... We had to study. We sat around the table to study our lessons. 
So, uh, but you know from the very earliest memories that I have, I had that self-centered fear. You know, it was from there from the very beginning. And we were talking, Larry and us were talking the other night about twisted thinking of the alcoholic. You know, there was no alcohol anywhere in our home. We went to church. There were None of my friends drank. But I started thinking different. My thinking was different. Because of that fear, I began to see the world as the really bad place to be in. I saw it as very threatening. And I saw a tremendous need to start building those defenses that would protect me. Like self-will and pride and I can do it myself and I don't need God kind of thing, you know. Those kind of character defects that when I did the sixth and seventh step, you know, you would tell me I would need to get rid of. But at this time, I needed them. I needed them to survive or I felt like I needed them to survive. And as I developed those kinds of traits and that way of thinking and that perception, it's like it covered my soul and I had a spiritual disease, a soul sickness. And, you know, I I learned later that alcohol was but a symptom, that my disease of alcoholism was a soul sickness. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought it was real different. You know, I thought because I'd rather sit around and read Plato and Aristotle while my friends were out cheerleading and dancing and having fun and doing all the normal things, falling in love and being in the back seat of a car. I didn't know how to do that stuff, you know. I, I didn't think about that. Life was serious business for me. You know, I wanted to change the world. And I remember when I was 12 and 13 years old, sitting there in that church, looking at my father and thinking, you can control my behavior, but you can't control my thinking. I felt very, very good about that. And I knew that someday I would go out there and I would change the world and I would make a difference. And I meant to do that. So I couldn't wait to leave that home. And when I left it, I went away to college and um, I met a young man at college and I did not fall in love. I wasn't going to do that. I met a man that I knew. Um, he was an agnostic. He was an intellectual. He liked to read books. He liked to study. But most of all, I knew he would never tell me what to do. And so we just uh, teamed up. Back in those days, that's the best way to get away from home and make it, was to find a man that would would be with you. And so that's the way I did it. And we became teachers. And the first year I taught... My students, my seniors were as old as I was or older. And uh, we, we seemed to be on the right track. You know, we had never had a drink at this point. I had never had a drink. I hadn't been around. I hadn't been partying. I'd just been studying real hard and taking life very seriously. And uh, then I made a little turn in my journey. <laughs> One summer I needed a job, and I got, I got a job with a modeling agency. I became a model and an instructor and high high fashion model and uh, it was there that I discovered alcohol and you know what alcohol did for me was all the things you hear in here it let me know that I could live with my kind of thinking 
and with all those character defects and all those attitudes that I could live in the world. With my soul sickness, I could make it. And I can make it just fine. And there was nothing wrong with me, and I didn't need to change. And that's what basically alcohol did for me. And so I would begin to use it for some time. I stayed in the modeling business for a couple of years. And, I mean, I might have been real sick, but even in my sickness, that was too much. You know, <laughs> uh, The way women were treated in that business, I mean, let's face it, I couldn't handle that. So... Uh, I took off, I took down my beehive hairdo, put my designer dresses aside, threw away my bra, put on my jeans, and joined the 60s. And I loved the 60s. I felt at home in the 60s. You know, I'd always wanted to change the world. I loved to fight. And the 60s was a perfect opportunity. Plus now, we were on a university campus in graduate school, which was the perfect atmosphere for all that. So I felt right at home, you know, boy, I was gung-ho. And then I had the alcohol to give me the courage to do what I know I needed to do, and that was to fight to change the world. And uh, we did that uh, on a regular basis, you know, it was just a part of that whole scene at that time. And... um just before we went on to a university where we would be teaching and working for the next 20 years, we adopted a beautiful little boy, and we took him with us. I wasn't able to have children, so that was a real high point in my life to have this little boy. So we were on a university campus for the next 20 years, and my drinking would progress. This disease that I had would progress. But on that campus, um, I was, you know, I was really going to save the world. Uh, I know the judge in that town from time to time would introduce me as Robin Hood, but I kind of like to think of myself as Joan of Arc. <laughs> you know, never fear, Kizzy is here. <laughs> My poor husband just retreated to his world of mathematics and mathematical research, and we wanted a quiet life on a quiet university campus, and that's what he did. And then I just, you know, I was into everything, as Romy knows. Uh, you know, I was uh, elected by the women of Kentucky as a delegate to the International Women's Year Conference. If you were a woman and you had a problem, you know, see me. If you, if you'd been beaten, if you'd, you'd been raped, if you'd had trouble with your boss, anything, come see me and I'd help you take care of it. And, um, my house was open, open house for, kids who were having problem, anyone who was having problem, you know, I would be there to help you. And my regular uniform were the jeans and the boots and the t-shirt and, you know, let's go. My hobbies during that time was judo and marksmanship. <laughs> you know, I found the more I drank, the more my disease progressed, all the other emotions that I felt, I just shoved, pushed farther and farther. And the only thing that came out was anger. I was just really, really angry. I was angry with the world. The only joy that I felt was when I was with this child. You know, we would go sailing. We would uh, study together. I took him places with me, and, and he was just a real joy in my life. But other than that, I was very angry, and I was fighting somebody all the time. Well, at the university, uh, you know, I'd given... 
people a rough way to go there and they those men on campus a lot of them had their own idea of what they call me but uh, I, I remember the day I went to the vice president and told him what he could do with that job that he was a, I called him a sexist pig and told him he could take the job and what he could do with it and uh, I went home to um, I went home to, to drink. But the year before that, I want to describe my last year on that campus, the last year of my drinking. I would get up in the morning and drink vodka and orange juice while I got dressed. I preferred scotch, but I felt like you couldn't smell orange juice. So I drank, I usually had about five vodka and orange juices while I was getting dressed to go to the university to teach my first class. That was a real good class. <laughs> that year, the students gave me the highest evaluation that had been given a teacher in that department. It was great. I'd finish that class and go back in about 10 o'clock. I was carrying some vodka in my purse, of course. I would go to the lounge and empty out a 7-Up and then fill that up, most of it, with vodka and put it in my desk drawer so that when I talked to people, I would have the vodka. Then I would, that would hold me over up for any committee meetings or, or conversations I needed to have. And then at noon, I lived about five minutes from the university, so I would come home to drink my lunch. Now, I had a housekeeper who was an alcoholic, and she didn't clean my house at all, but she drank all my booze. I remember one day, she said to me, I don't think I work, can work for you anymore. And she had a sixth grade education. And I said, well, that's, that's fine, but what are you going to do? She said, I want a job just like you. <laughs> it's an ideal job for an alcoholic, you know, if you can pull this off. Then I would go back to the university and make it through until I could come home and do some serious drinking, and that involved my favorite drink of choice, which was scotch. And it was in the evening... I felt like a general planning my great strategies for battle, you know, at my dining table. I had everything spread out. The telephone was there. That's when I would call the White House, uh, the television stations. I'd be watching something. I didn't like what they were talking about. I'd call them. I called women. I had networks all over the country, and I kept in touch with women all over. And people would drop in, and, you know, I really felt like I was making a difference. But then I resigned and came home to uh, to really feel sorry for myself. And I was really going to take charge then. But what I did was just move my headquarters to a private living room. And there, that way I wouldn't, no one would see me when they came and went. And I just drank. I drank the clock brown. I can't say that I drank when I got up in the morning because I don't know when I got up. You know, there, there was no time. This was the hell of the end of my alcoholic, alcoholic drinking. It was pure hell. I, no one ever said anything to me about my drinking. You know, I was dying. I was mostly drinking at home because this was a dry county. There were no bars. And um, I would never have thought I was an alcoholic. But... Uh, I remember coming to and drinking and passing out, coming to, 
and it became a cycle. And one night my son came in. He was now in high school. And he said, Mom, I've seen you help many people. Why don't you help yourself? The first person who ever confronted me with my drinking, he had tears. You know, the one person that I really cared about and that I would not have hurt, you know, I was hurting. And that really, that was hard. So I told him that I would try. And I really meant it. Larry, we mean it when we say we're not going to do this again. And I, I really did try. You know how you try all the different things. You don't. I wasn't going to drink until 10 o'clock. wasn't going to drink until noon. And, and, of course, we can't keep those promises. Once we cross that line, you cannot keep those promises, no matter how good our intentions are. And so it was on the night of April the 18th when I knew I could not keep the promise. And um, that's when I, you know, I, I didn't want to live anymore. I knew I couldn't live out there in the world the way I was with my attitude or, or I tried. I could not live out in the world without alcohol. And I knew I wasn't living this way. This is not what I planned to be. You know, I, I had not, I looked in the mirror and I saw someone I didn't even recognize. And so I remembered my brother John. Two years before our father had died, Romy and I were drunk at the funeral. We were wondering how in this dry territory we were going to get something else to drink. That was our big concern. John, everybody knew John was an alcoholic. I mean, John caused havoc on in Europe, Asia. I mean, everybody knew about John everywhere. Really, Portsmouth, Ohio, I know about that story. <clears throat> but at the funeral, John was not drinking. He was being responsible. He was helping my mother. He was doing things that responsible children are supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, I was kind of amazed. And I said, John, what happened to you? He, he looked different. He seemed different. And he said, I, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not drinking today. Wow. You know, they say it's we may be the only big book anyone will ever read. People could have preached to me, and I'm sure I heard sermons all my life. I had read about alcoholism in psychology when I studied it. You know, nothing makes the difference like the example of someone you knew was a drunk and they're now sober. And so uh, I remembered that. And that night when I needed help, I was all alone. And I was desperate. I thought, I don't know what this Alcoholics Anonymous is, but it held my brother John, so I'm going to call. And I called, and two men came to my house. Nan, I found out I was the only woman drunk in western Kentucky. <laughs> found out later, Nan was the other one. <laughs> Wild Nan. Somebody said, you need to go over and talk to her after I got sober. You need to talk to Nan. She was also a professor at the university. I'm not going near that woman. She was mean. She was awful. Um, but anyway, I went. Uh, these two men came, and one of them was the attorney for the university, Jim. The other one was a professor at the university. Jim had been sober for years, I don't know, 25 years maybe at that time. And they told me about themselves, and they gave me hope. 
and they took me to Alcoholics Anonymous, a group of men there in this small town, a group of old-timers mostly. I asked Jim if he'd be my sponsor, and he said, no, now, Kizzy, in Alcoholics Anonymous, men sponsor men and women sponsor women. And I can't do that. And I said, well, look around. You got any suggestions? <laughs> and he said, well, Dorothy and I, that was his wife, Dorothy and I will sponsor you. And I was never alone with that man without his wife being present. I went to his office at the university to meet with him, and she was his secretary, and she came right in with us. She was always with us. When I went out of town to meetings, she rode with us. She drove, and he and I talked, and it, it worked out great. But the main thing that group of men gave to me, those old-timers, was the traditions and the simple message of love and service in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they didn't have any big club rooms and they didn't have all the dances and all the this and all that, no group therapy, none of that stuff. And Jim, oh, bless his heart, you know, he'd look real sad sometimes and he'd say, Kizzy, I don't want this program to change. You have to pass it on the way it was passed on to me. And so he must have known, you know, here I am with my degrees in psychology and philosophy, that I would be getting Irene, who has a law degree, and she can, between the books she and I read, you know, we can complicate and, and screw up a simple program very easily. And so he instilled in me the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tell you, I want to send Jim a message, you know, he's still alive and he's still there. And, and I know how sad he has become at times, but I want to send him a message that I have passed on the message he gave to me to these. <laughs> and it hasn't changed. It's still the simple message of love and service. And Ross passed him on to these guys. You know, the CHIPS group of Alcoholics Anonymous is not out there dealing with all other kinds of issues. We're keeping it simple. We're keeping it simple. And so when I think of the old timers and what they've given us, I get real emotional. I don't apologize for that. And I don't want to see this program change either. And I know I don't have the time of all you guys, you know, last night and yesterday and this morning. But And I appreciate, I appreciate what you people have given to us. But I have to tell you, I never really gave up the pills. I'm an alcoholic, and Alcoholics Anonymous deals with singleness purpose. But this little short part has a very important impact in my story. Because I have to tell you, I see people coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, and it is about not drinking, and it is about alcoholism, and that's, that is what it's all about for me. But I'll tell you, when I do anything else that keeps you from touching my soul, when I do anything else that keeps me from looking at those defects of character which protect that soul, the steps, the big book, and everything I do gets right up here, but it doesn't go down here. And so for five years, Larry, for five years, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous. I loved the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had the best sponsor in the best group. I had the best of everything. But I, that was the big secret of my life. And I did not give up the pills, and I did not change. I could quote you the big book, and I could tell you how to work the steps, but there was no difference in my life, and I was getting sicker and sicker. My marriage ended. My son was leaving home. 
and I was depending more and more on the pills to cope with it. And that's when I met Ross. <laughs> oh, and I fell in love. <laughs> you know, at my age, you kind of go through adolescence and menopause at the same time, and that's how. <laughs> I'd have a hot flash and my pimples would light up. <laughs> but Ross had been sober a year, divorced a year, and had a little boy, and he took Alcoholics Anonymous seriously. Real seriously. You know, and, you know, psychologists, psychology teaches us about healthy relationships. It tells you when you let go of one relationship, you go through a grieving process, you come to closure, you have some time and you experience other people as friends. Alcoholics don't understand that. We don't understand closure. <laughs> what we do with relationships is we're hanging on for dear life with our clutches in somebody. they got to take care of us, you know. Beggy. <laughs> and then what we do, if we see someone else, we get our clutches in them and hang on to them and barely let go of the whatever we had there to get into that, and then we hang on. In other words, we met and we were married, and that's the way it is. And it happened that quickly. So here I was, married, to someone who took the program seriously. He would get up in the morning and do his prayer and meditation. I would get up and do my prayer and medication. <laughs> and uh, it was my biggest secret. And I'll tell you, it was eating me alive. The dishonesty was eating me alive. And so we were married two weeks. And I went out and got drunk. I called Romy. She was drinking then. I said, Romy, I want to go get drunk. You know, she, she didn't know I was taking pills. And um, no one knew that. Ross was real surprised when he found that out. Real surprised. Real angry about that, too, I'll tell you. But anyway, I was, uh, it's a whole new ballpark, you know, to come off that stuff. I had to go in and, um, and um, come off the pills. And when I was, I was crazier than I've ever been in my life. The alcohol leaves in about three days and the other stuff, you know, just comes out your tissues over a long period of time and you go crazy on a daily basis. And so at six months, I left, I, uh, my brother Hugh, I was going through a psychotic kind of withdrawal and my brother Hugh, who is a, a writer, but mostly he does alcohol and other drugs, mostly drugs, I had swung through town on one of his big trips and I knew he was in town. So I called my brother Hugh and I said, Hugh, I think I'm going to run away. Would you like to go with me? And he said, I heard that. <laughs> now, you have to know my brother Hugh. He has a very colorful language. Um, but anyway, I left a note for Ross. Ross went to work and I left him a note telling him that I knew he couldn't love me. I mean, after all, no one could love me. You know, I hated myself and what I was, and I knew no one else could. I put the note on the table. I rushed in and got some clothes and put it in the car. I went back by the bank and checked out a large amount of cash. And I went by and picked up my brother, Hugh, and we went to the next town, to Lexington, and he had his stash, and I got lots of alcohol. And then I stopped at a girlfriend from the past, and she gave me a loaded thirty-eight. She thought I might need it out there. You know, we were taking our usual alcoholic trip. And um, 
So we were off for two months. I remember I thought Hugh was so wise, particularly when he was drinking, uh, doing drugs. He was so wise. He said to me, you know, we were riding along, and he said, kids, you've lived all your life on a university campus. You've missed the good people and the good places. And I'm going to show them to you. And um, Hugh always, you know, he got a kind of a spiritual look on his face when he was high. And he said, you know, you don't need AA. You don't need Ross. What you need are your wings, and I'm going to help you get your wings. And I realized later, just as soon as the cash was all gone, I was going to get my wings. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't draw a sober breath. It was it was pure hell. Most of it's a blackout, and I really thank God protects us sometimes that we don't remember some things. And it was on October the 16th, 1986, I called Ross. And I said, I need your help. And he said, come on back. That is when I started working the program. Such a blessing to stand up here without anything in my stomach but a Rolaid. You know, <laughs> wonderful, Jerry. <laughs> um, and um, I started working the program this time. You see, you were able to reach the soul. You were able to reach where I was really sick. In my soul, I began to work the steps. I went to this chips group of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, where they loved me and where they allowed me to be me and to let down my defenses and to be vulnerable and to be sick. And I was very, very sick. And I began to work the steps at my, the level of my soul. And that's when God sent me to the children. All the time now. It's wonderful. <laughs> I used to be on Valium and I'd be so cool. <laughs> I love to be cool. <laughs> oh, my talks were wonderful, you all. Now I just cry and slobber and do all these things and just love it. Feels so good. Um, but anyway, I, um, you know, any time in my life I've been around children, I was not able to have children, but way back from the very beginning, when I, in all my desperate attempt to change the world and take everything so seriously. But the only time I felt joy and felt spiritual, felt any sense of the spiritual, was around children. Because children live close to their soul, you know, and you feel that. But it was the children, uh, you know, it was a couple years ago. My son called me. He's now married, and he's living in Evansville up there where Jerry is. And they've got, he called me, and he said, Mom, we're ready to induce labor, would you come up and be in the labor room when our child is born? Oh, this is wonderful. I was just so excited, and I stayed in there, and I watched this baby be born. And he, they gave it to my son, wrapped it in a blanket, and he brought it over, and he looked down, and I looked at his face, and he said, isn't this awesome? And I knew it was awesome. Yeah, I felt it. I knew I was in the presence of the divine. Then Ken and Irene, at the same time, their little girl, whom they had named for us, Peyton, they called her Peyton Miracle, and she was in this uh, neonatal ward at the university hospital for three months. And Irene took me in there, and I could put my hand in the incubator, and she fit just right in my, the cup of my hand. And I knew I was in the presence of the divine. The struggle, such a struggle to live, 
such a beautiful, and now they're two years old. And they are so beautiful. I, well, all of you who are grandmothers here today know how I feel about these children. And when I'm with them, I watch their spontaneity, their trust. You know, they look at the birds and they pick up little flowers. And I think that's what God wanted me to be. That's what he wants us to be, to live close to our soul the way the children do. And so that day in early sobriety, when I couldn't, I was coming off the pills and I couldn't be by myself. I called Romy. I said, I can't be by myself and I can't be with anyone. I'm going crazy. And she said, well, come on over. She was just getting sober now. She was on some board for spouse abuse. And she said, we're going to be meeting in the back room of a restaurant. And you can just come and sit with us. I promise you don't have to say anything. You can just sit there. And so I remember that day. I went over. I was just shaking. had on old sweats. My hair looked a mess. I had my sunglasses on. I was sitting at this table eating my soup. And someone was across the table. I didn't want to look up. And I heard this man talking about children. He was talking about them the way I've always felt about children. I began to look up. And we began to talk. And it touched those cords, those cords that had been damaged. My life had been so damaged, but it touched that cord deep inside of me. A year later, I was sent, a year later, I became the counselor of a large middle school there in Frankfurt. 750 middle schoolers. And I would just get up in the morning and I would say, I'd say my third step prayer. God, relieve me of bondage itself. Use me as a tool to help these kids. And I'd go back, you know, to the group, and they'd teach me the simple, simple principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, the principle of love and service. And I'd carry that message to those children. When I go back Monday, I'll have four days. I'm retiring. I'll have four days with them. That was ten years ago, nine years ago. So I'll have, uh, I'll be retiring and I have four more days with them. So two weeks ago, <clears throat> the staff gave me a big retirement dinner and they said all nice things like they usually say at a retirement dinner. They gave me a silver bowl and a plaque and, but the most beautiful gift I received was a book from the children. They'd taken this book of empty pages. <laughs> Excuse me. And they wrote messages. Messages like, you were there when my mother died. You were there, you know, when I wanted to, when I OD'd and I was in the hospital and now, you know, you helped me face life. Uh, I haven't had a smoke to joint since I was in your clean and sober group. You were there, um, you know, and they went on and on. One kid said, thank you for helping me tolerate that preppy prick of a principal. <laughs> I loved it. I'm sorry, Josh. I, I forgot Josh was here. But. but anyway, you know, in schools we have the greatest computer, greatest technology. We have beautiful buildings. We have new reforms in Kentucky. And nobody touches the soul. Nobody touches the soul. We have more kids on either illegal or legal drugs. 
over half of our kids. The teachers are all burnt out because nobody's touching the soul. We go into the hospitals and we have tremendous technology. They can take a heart out and put a new one in. Nobody touches or takes care of the soul. We have treatment programs. Counselors who now have all these certifications and all this to work with us drunks, you know, and they're just really well trained. But in so many of them, they don't touch the soul. You know, but I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous does and that's why it works. It's because Alcoholics Anonymous touches the soul. And I think in anything we do in life, you know, unless we touch the soul, it really doesn't work. And so I came to you like a little child, you know, with a bottle of scotch in one hand, pills in the other. And I was very, very sick. My soul was sick. And you took me in and you taught me a simple message of love and service, the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the message that I bring to you today. That's the only message I know. That's the only message I need to know because I'm Kizzy and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. today my leg finally went to sleep for good <laughs> thank you that was awesome uh, what you hear here let it stay here if there's nothing else let's close with the Lord's Prayer Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Nobody. Are you okay? Thank you. Nobody. I'm sure that's a question. Yeah. It's embarrassing. You're doing a great job there.